Welcome to the Tea and Gardens podcast, where we drink tea and explore the gardens of Victoria, B.C. This is the companion piece to the video series, which was filmed on the Kwangan territory in the spring of 2022, the year of the garden. Point Ellis House is one of our favorite spots in the city, but it's also one of the noisiest parts of town. The house is right next to a large recycling depot in Rockland, and we made the mistake of trying to record our video in front of the house. Here's a clip so you can get an idea of what we mean by noisy. But through the gate and behind the house, there is a vast garden and lawn, and thankfully a completely different soundscape of birds singing. Mm, it really is lovely. And we first visited Point Ellis House as part of a different podcast called Value Nature. It was about the connections between nature and culture on Vancouver Island. And we interviewed Executive Director Kelly Black for our first episode. He was so warm and kind and knowledgeable about the history of Victoria. We were very excited to speak with him again and to meet his colleagues, Assistant Curator Christea Dupont, and Visitor Experience and Programming Coordinator, Janine Worthing. We began our conversation with Kelly and Janine in the garden on a brisk, fresh, but sunny day. If Victoria is known as a city of gardens, I would say Point Ellis House is one of the less known gardens. And because we're located in an, what is today an industrial neighborhood, a lot of people have no idea that there's two acres of heritage gardens uh, here in, in this neighborhood. I will say on that as well, when visitors arrive, they usually comment to me that they thought they were lost before they finally found our gate. So that uh, attests to us being a hidden gem, not only in Victoria, but in the neighborhood here, just tucked against the water there. We have the longest remaining natural shoreline on the Gorge Waterway. So the gardens here are particularly special and tell us a lot about native and non-native species on Vancouver Island and in Victoria. And so we've spent the last almost three years restoring it, putting in raised garden beds, putting in irrigation systems, removing the invasive species, basically reclaiming the South Garden for the purposes of food and cut flowers, which is what the O'Reilly family of Point Ellis House used it for. So we've kind of reinstated that historical connection, which serves the purposes of history and storytelling, but also growing food for the community. So it's win-win. And what do you grow here today? Oh, all kinds of things. Right now we've got herbs, we've got strawberries, We've got salad greens that are about ready to be harvested. Uh, we've got our garlic, which is about ready to be harvested. Blueberries. We have pear trees some apple trees and cut flowers as well. And so when you harvest all those things, what, what do you do with it? Janine? Yeah. So we've built a relationship with Kool-Aid Society Sandy Merriman House, which is an emergency transition shelter for women. And so a lot of the food that we grow here goes to them to help support the residents there. There's the community fridge up the street uh, that has recently been created that we will probably put some of our extra food into right. the community fridge, which is essentially a fridge for that has food and a pantry that has food for anyone who needs it. So who tends to the gardens? Do you have volunteers? 
So we have two garden staff, one of whom is responsible for the South Garden. And then we also have a team of dedicated volunteers who help us plant seeds, harvest seeds, pull weeds, rake and mow and all of that kind of stuff. And we definitely could not do it without the volunteers. So not only is the food being grown going back into the community, but community members are helping grow that food as well. So it's a story here at Point Elsos that we're quite proud of. You also have a woodland walk. So if people yes. come here to see the gardens, what else uh, could they explore? The woodland walk is part of the garden experience here at Point Ellis House in that in the Victorian era, it was common to have your formal gardens, but also your sort of quote-unquote wild area. And so the woodland walk here essentially takes you along part of the shoreline and you can see trees that were planted by Peter O'Reilly that are non-native, but you can also see enormous arbutus trees and Gary Oaks, and you'll see the trails where the river otters haul themselves up out of the water. So it's this little segment of the experience here for visitors that gives you a sense of the natural shoreline here at Point Ellis House and its importance to the ecosystem of the harbor and the city itself. I very much cherish the woodland walk for all the animals that I get to see. Uh, we have some bald eagles that like to hang out in our mature trees, blue herons along the, the shoreline there. Um, and then Kelly also mentioned the river otters that we get. We've got little raccoons that like to hang out. So it attracts a lot of wildlife um, that you don't, living in a city, you don't always get the chance to see. And especially being in a located in a neighborhood like this, you wouldn't you wouldn't even think that you'd see those things when you come to visit. So I always get to see animals when I'm at work and that makes me happy. Point Ellis House is one of the oldest houses in Victoria and its former residents, the O'Reilly family, played a significant role in shaping the province of British Columbia. We were privileged to explore inside the house and discover its history of tea service. Assistant curator Christia gave us an extensive tour and shared her knowledge and humor with us. Right, hi there. Welcome to Point Alice House. Here. Oh my goodness. We've never been in here. It's gorgeous. This is our biggest, gaudiest room. <laughs> this is the drawing room of the O'Reilly family. So Point Ellis House was built in 1861, but its construction finished in 1862. And in that time, the Wentworth Wallace family moved in and they lived there for about five years, but they fell on hard times and moved out in 1867. And at that time, the O'Reilly family moved in and they lived here until 1975. So that's three generations of O'Reilly's and they never threw anything out. So everything in this room Everything in this entire house, right down to the bed sheets, is original to the O'Reilly family. So, yeah. It's like their presence is still here. Yeah, absolutely. Did they play all these instruments? Yes. Yes. So Kathleen played the harp. That was a gift from her aunt. And they both played the piano, which we know because all of the sheet music will occasionally have a little signature from one of the members of the family. So they were very musically inclined. I always like to point out the cabinet in the corner just because it is 
a uh, curiosity cabinet, which is like the feature of many 19th century drawing rooms and many of the biggest museums in the world, including the British Museum, started as a curiosity cabinet. So it's really interesting that these tiny collections of things that people were collecting, whether it was, you know, biological samples of bits of feathers or shells or trinkets and antiques from travels abroad ended up in these little cabinets in people's rooms. And some of them would go on to be massive cultural heritage institutions today, which I think is really cool. There's even a little miniature afternoon tea tower. Yes. Yeah, you might notice as well the little tea tower with the sandwiches or the little uh, wicker uh, serving tray with the tea set on it as well. So, Do you know what kind of sandwiches the O'Reilly's liked with their tea? We have several recipes in the collection from the O'Reilly's because, again, they never threw anything out. So there, we have several recipes for different things, including salmon sandwiches. Uh, we've actually reproduced them and sell some of them in our gift shop. So everything from like salmon sandwiches to like marmalade. So I think that they liked an assortment. Whatever was in fashion at the time. Sure. <laughs> salmon sandwiches really reminds me of tea at my grandma's house. That is so classic. Mm -hmm. I promise that those sandwiches are also not original. Sure. <laughs> Make a fresh sandwich every day and put it out. <laughs> Do you guys want to quickly see the rest of the house? This yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I'm going to want to shoot everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so just really quickly, these are the two women's rooms. Okay. Uh, women's rooms were a little bit bigger because they not only uh, dressed and changed and slept there, but also because that was also where they entertained guests. It was where they embroidered clothing and made clothing and drew and sang and did everything. Of, that they did. <laughs> but Kathleen is of interest because she was the eldest daughter of the O'Reilly's and she's also relevant to one of the artifacts that I'm going to show you a little bit. I'll tell you more about her later though. So this is Peter O'Reilly's study. Peter O'Reilly was the patriarch of the O'Reilly family. He was many things over the course of his career. He was a judge, he was a gold commissioner, and most notably he was the Indian Reserves Commissioner for 18 years. So his job was to go out to uh, the various nations of BC and stake out and tell the First Nations people, this is how much land you have. This is the land that you are allowed to hunt and live on. He was not always the best for consulting with the First Nations people when their chiefs were present. So there was quite a bit of controversy even then, especially among the First Nations people about the amount of land that they were receiving. So this room is very beautiful, but it has a little bit of a history to it because this is where he would have corresponded with letters and essentially worked when he was not traveling British Columbia. And one thing that I always like to point out to people is out this window where he would have sat and worked is what used to be the Songhees Reserve. So... The Indian Reserve Commissioner kind of sat in this big, beautiful house and overlooked a reserve that he laid essentially the parameters for. How do you feel working here and being able to share this story and put it in a context that maybe museums haven't done before? I am really excited to be a part of this kind of new side of museums. A lot of museums and 
cultural heritage sites are acknowledging the colonial history in a way that they haven't before. And I'm really excited to be working here and being able to talk about this because Point Ellis House, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like we need to talk about the Indian Reserve Commission, but we can also talk about tea service and we can also talk about Kathleen O'Reilly. So we can talk about all of these things, but things like this should be talked about. So this is Kathleen O'Reilly's room. Kathleen was the eldest daughter of Peter and Caroline O'Reilly. And she lived here pretty much her entire life. She was very well-traveled, so she did spend some time in England. She was quite the artist. Most of the paintings in this room are done by her. But she was also sought after by many gentlemen. So she actually never married, but she was pursued by the likes of Harry Stanhope, as well as Robert Scott of the ill-fated Antarctic exploration. So, yeah. Who's this portrait of? Is that her? Uh, it's believed to be her, yeah. Kathleen is of interest because she was the eldest daughter of the O'Reillys, and she's also relevant to one of the artifacts that I'm going to show you a little bit. Great. This is the dining room. Uh, one thing that I like to bring up to people who come and visit is the fact that we have a collection of well over 500 calling cards. And it's essentially the 19th century equivalent of a Facebook friends list. So we know who came and dined at this table because, well, they came and called and they left a card and we still have the cards. So we know for a fact that Sir Johnny MacDonald probably dined at this table. We know about Sir Matthew Bailey Begbie and Arthur Creese and the Church family. Anybody in local politics you can name from the 19th century probably dined in this room at some point. On the other side of that though, they were waited on by domestic staff who were primarily Chinese immigrants. Uh, and as we go in further into the house, we'll look at some of the areas where they lived. But for the most part, domestic Chinese staff who would either walk over from Chinatown or they would spend the night in the servant's room here. So I know about calling cards because I have been watching the Gilded Age. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're all over it. It's really interesting how people come and be like, oh, that reminds me of Downton Abbey. Oh, that reminds me of Pride and Prejudice. Oh, that reminds me of so-and-so. And I'm like, yeah. It's almost like they're evocative of a real yeah. period in history. <laughs> I like it because it means that they're able to engage with the history like on a bit more of a, like a deeper level. So yeah. if you can have that kind of precognition of how things were, and, you know, obviously everything on TV is a little bit more cleaner. Yeah cleaner and you know but sanitized compared to the true history sometimes but i think that you know it allows people to come to places like these and really dig into that deeper history so yeah yeah shall we move on yes. and finally we're in the kitchen which is the second last room in the house uh, this is where the Chinese domestic staff spent most of their time in Point Ellis House, preparing food, washing dishes, and caring for the house and the people who lived here. And this is also probably where water was boiled for tea, crumpets and scones and things, and other tea delights were made for tea services. A lot of the food that they would have eaten actually was grown on site. So the South Garden is also known as the Kitchen Garden, and it's where they would have grown 
the daily vegetables that they would have eaten, you know, and either preserved or eaten fresh that day. So, but they also had a piggery. We also had a cow for fresh milk. There was no grocery store back then, so you had to be somewhat self-sustaining. Although that isn't to say that they didn't go into town for a pint or a meal at somebody else's house. But considering that how often they were hosting people, they did have to have quite a bit of food because they weren't just feeding themselves. They were a wealthy political family, so they needed to be feeding not just the kids, but also Johnny McDonald if he came by or Sir Matthew Bailey Begbie. So that's why there's a whole pantry full of tea things. (laughs) You never know who's coming for dinner. So I have a couple artifacts to share, including this tea service. This white pattern design has some Japanese motifs. A lot of the china in the O'Reilly collection in Puenella's house is Japanese, interestingly enough. And this set is no exception. This white set was actually gifted to Peter, allegedly, according to our catalog by Robert F. Scott, who was part of the Antarctica expedition in 1910 that did not end well. And this was a gift to Peter O'Reilly because at one point he was pursuing her Peter's daughter, Kathleen O'Reilly. So this very well may have just been a friendly gift or it may have been a, I am pursuing your daughter, here is a gift, (laughs) with a little bit more of an intention behind it. There's also a couple pieces missing, which just kind of goes to show the history behind the tea services, which I think is really interesting. So you can see some of the wear on some of these items that just show that they were items that were used. They weren't just for display. I was going to do an unboxing video for you. (laughs) So this is a little tea service to go. So it's a little wicker basket, which I've set out here. And the top opens like this. And you can see the patent as well as the directions for how to use it, which is really fun. And you've got almost a complete tea service here. So you've got a little burner where you would light your little flame so you could heat up your water. You've got a couple little containers to put your tea, any snacks. You've got three plates and you've also got a container for mustard because of course, (laughs) as well as a few other little jars and containers in here that I think had several different uses. I also have this to show up as well. Something in our collection that we've turned into a poster for sale. It's from a children's book. We're all very fond of it. Say below the cat's tea party. I could look at this forever. Cat heads on human torsos is a really weird choice. <laughs> it's very Tom Hooper's cats. Is that in fact that looks like it's a cat's head stitched on to the is that what I'm looking at? I'm not sure. <laughs> no, she's just got a crazy necklace, but oh it does God. look stitched on, you're right. It's like Mars attacks. That one looks more like a dog to me. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Wow. If you want to see the cat's tea party for yourself, and you really should, you can check it out on the Point Ellis House website. Once we tore ourselves away from the picture, we headed to the lawn to have tea with the whole Point Ellis team. Should I take one? 
Absolutely. There's milk and sugar. Thank you. I'm trying to keep it black. Milk. Could you tell us about the tea that we're drinking, please? Well, this tea is Point Ellis House tea, and it's made by Silk Road Tea Company. Um, and it's a special blend made just for us here at Point Ellis House. And it's a black tea? It is a black tea. The past, uh, some of the past curators here at Point Ellis House, about a decade or more ago, were going through the collection and they found an old tea tin that had some remnants left in it. And so they took those to Silk Road, which analyzed them and their research found that it was a black tea blend. And so they recreated it. And um, now we have the privilege of selling it here in our gift shop at Point Ellis House. And it offers a little bit of a historical connection between uh, tea service then and, and now. Certainly seems like the O'Reilly's drank a lot of tea in this house. I think so. Certainly the amount of teacups we have would be evidence of that. Mm -hmm. Tea on the lawn was a very popular event here historically among the O'Reilly's and their friends and the social elites of, of Victoria and British Columbia. Have you ever tried to drink out of the teacups in the collection? We would never. <laughs> we would never. No. 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 Not allowed. <laughs> Not allowed. That's why we have these reproductions. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, having such a large and rich collection is truly a gift that keeps on giving, um, as I'm sure Christia will attest to as the expert of all the objects. It's always really fun to dig into what we've got here and come up with something new to say based on a different set or subject that we're trying to dig into. Yeah. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about, we were in the kitchen earlier, we saw the recipe cards. Yes. Could you tell us a bit about those? So before I was an employee here, I was a student at uh, the University of Victoria. And we, for our public history course, partnered with Point Ellis House, and we were doing some projects based on the house. And in the team that I was on, we decided to try to do and delve into more of a sensory experience of the house, which you can't eat or drink in the house, but as a way to bring the sense of taste to visitors. Uh, we dug into some of the historical recipes that are in the collection. And so we selected nine of them, uh, adapted them for modern kitchens, which it doesn't always translate very nicely. If you have a wood-fired stove or a coal-fired stove, it's a lot different than our electric stoves. We sussed out all those details, adapted them for modern kitchens, and then we uh, made recipe cards out of them. And so, Visitors can grab a recipe card from the gift shop on their way out and try their hand at some of the historical recipes that are in the collection here. I'd like to hear your thoughts on why there's such a strong tea culture in this city. It's connected to the sense of Victoria being a place that represents the British Empire and the sort of height of British settler colonialism and this little bit of old England, if you will, uh, on the west coast of North America. And part of that is also connected to tourism. And especially in the sort of post-Second World War era, Vancouver Island, Victoria in particular, becomes a real destination for tourists, but especially American tourists. 
and those visitors really wish to see something of little old England that they may have heard about and get that experience of castles and tea and what have you uh, here on the island without having to maybe travel all the way to London. And even when Point Ellisos was opened as a private museum by the last descendants of the O'Reilly family, they were very much looking to attract tourists to this place, especially American visitors. So they were in constant communication with the bus lines to bring visitors off the ferries from downtown to Point Ellis House. They dressed in period costume to offer that quote-unquote authentic experience. So I think the sort of um, obsession or passion for tea in Victoria, it, it comes from those sort of British Empire roots and this long going, what is now a tradition, uh, in some ways, an effort to attract American visitors in particular. But I think the fact that what the British made of tea was connecting it to a particular set of rituals that were also tied into social status and class hierarchy. And that part of it was transported around the globe to places like Victoria. And that's why tea service at Point Ellis House, from a historical point of view, was so important to have that time with your social circle, to put in the time, keeping up appearances, having those conversations about how things were going in the early days of a colony or a new province. So that aspect of it remained essential to the O'Reilly family when they lived here and also when they tried to operate it as a tourist site as well, but for slightly different reasons. Some geese. I'd like to ask each of you in turn, I guess, what is your personal relationship with tea? I've only actually started drinking tea, I think, in the last five to ten years. I'm not a lifelong tea drinker. I was a bean queen before I was uh, a tea drinker. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I kind of fell into drinking tea just because the beans are hurting my tummy. <laughs> this is too much detail. <laughs> too much personal detail. Um yeah, I used to be predominantly a coffee drinker, and I kind of started trying out different teas because I had friends that were really into it, and they were, uh, some might call it bastardizing tea a little bit, trying different things with it, making strange concoctions, and uh, I got to be the taste tester for a lot of their different uh, flavor combinations, and then I kind of grew uh, my interest from there. I still am somebody who will drink tea with the bag in it until I'm done with it. I don't remove the tea bag. So <laughs> I know I'm an animal. Um, but as far as, yeah, my relationship, I don't, uh, I'm, I haven't been much of a tea drinker for most of my life. So you bring in the humor, Christina. Bean queen. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I've had that before. But it's so good. That refers to refried beans. No. Yeah, yeah. You mix Lime. it with hot water. <laughs> Personal relationship with tea. Well, I'm definitely a tea drinker, but 
not daily or even weekly. I think I, I have tea f- that suits my moods and occasions. There's something about a cup of tea on a rainy day, which we get a lot of here, and I, I often enjoy a cup of tea on a rainy day. Um, you know, I, I always grew up with a tea cupboard at my grandparents' house. It was just Lipton or Red Rose, Orange Pico with lots of milk. I'm definitely a person who, as a historian, also really knows that there's a lot of history behind tea across numerous cultures. And that's something that I always enjoy learning more about. And I think this series is, is trying to get at a little bit. So um, it's a it's a fair weather relationship, but a good one. Yeah. It wasn't until I became an adult that I actually acquired the taste for tea. Starting off with Earl Grey. I don't know why. There's just something about Earl Grey that got to me. But uh, nowadays, I you can find me drinking almost any kind of tea. Kind of have one for each different mood. I'm very much someone who likes to try different flavors and see what suits my mood. Uh, usually green tea in the mornings if I'm not drinking coffee. Black teas in the afternoon and then save the herbal teas for the evening. I would probably say there's not a day that goes by that I don't drink a cup of tea. I even last year was the first year I tried my hand at growing spearmint to make my own spearmint tea. And I'm going to try again this year, but I still need to go and pick out a, a spearmint plant because mine did not survive the winter. So. <laughs> That's a shame. That's cool. Though. Yeah. What does it mean to you to work here? Wow, it means a lot. It means I get a job in history which is pretty awesome. Point Ellis House is like the best research project you ever had. As other staff have said, this place has so many stories to tell and we're always learning more every day. It means an opportunity to actively connect with people about the history of this place. And that is really something that I'm passionate about. And I know everybody who works here and volunteers here is passionate about the idea that we get to welcome people to such a special place every day keeps us all going. And so for me, just connecting with people about the history of this place is probably the number one thing that Point Ellis House, you know, provides for me in terms of a passion to, to make this place open and accessible and talk about the romance of drinking tea with Sir Robert Scott of Antarctic fame and to talk about the, you know, the dark side of BC Canadian history of Peter O'Reilly and Sir John A. Macdonald drinking tea and talking about what they called quote unquote, the Indian land question. Those conversations happened here. Those encounters happened here. And when we get to uncover them for people or make them visible for people, that's super rewarding and, and really keeps us going here. Thank you so much to Kelly, Christea, and Janine. We love learning from them. They have taught us so much about Victoria and its history. You can learn more about Point Ellis House on their website or find them on Instagram, where they have a fun and well-curated social presence. 
For a visual tour of the garden, check out the Teen Gardens video series, available on TELUS Optic TV or YouTube. We also have a social media account that shows highlights of the gardens we explored. You can find us at Teen Gardens YYJ. Thanks for listening and happy gardening.